Since we are in the season of Hanukkah, yeah, we are going to talk a little bit about Hanukkah. And last week I kind of started a little bit, didn't get very far, but kind of wanted to give you a little bit of rundown and just make some clarifications on all of this. There are all kinds of traditions, and as I said last week, um, I think it's very important for all of us to keep in mind that these are just traditions. There's none of this that was commanded by God in the Bible. And we're going to kind of talk a little bit why we do Hanukkah, why we don't do Christmas, which for those listening is probably going to be very shocking here in some ways, but just hang in there. We're having a debate on the proper spelling of Hanukkah. There's a number of different ways and the reason being is because you're trying to take it from the Hebrew, so you might see it C-H, I've seen that. which is just some way, sometime the way they kind of pronounce the a little bit more of a hard, guttural thing when you're translating it. So, and two Ks, yeah. I probably messed up there, so I think it is one N, two Ks. But there's a number of different ways that you'll see it. So um, sometimes around this time of year when you're driving around town, you might see a Hanukkah in the windows of a few homes. Not very many, but I do see them from time to time. And it always kind of makes me wonder, boy, I wonder, do they know the Lord? And that's kind of one of the things that is sad, but also, I guess, encouraging in some ways. I'm always excited to see it, but I also wonder, do they really truly know what Hanukkah is really about? Do they know the Lord Jesus Christ? And we're going to kind of talk about what it truly is about, both from a Jewish perspective and, I think, a Christian perspective. And ultimately, it should be the same. It should not be different because really, you know, like we said last week, Jesus is the Jew. Jesus celebrated this in John 10. We're going to talk about that later. But some of the traditions that people will do during this time is they eat a lot of oily foods. And that's because it, there was a, a miracle of oil that, as the story goes, that took place during this season. And so oily foods have become a tradition. We'll talk more about that story in a moment. We're not going to go through too much of the traditions here tonight. Like I said, there's different things that people do, but primarily it's getting together with family, oftentimes getting gifts. It's eight days long and lighting your menorah in a sense, but a Hanukkah, the difference being that there are eight nights. So it has eight candlesticks plus an extra one that's used, it's called the Seamus candle that is used to light the others. Now, we mentioned last week that you can read about Hanukkah in the book of Maccabees. Again, not scripture, but it is history. It is a historical book and it is well worth reading, hard to read because you see that what was going on here in the book of Maccabees was just horrific. We said last week that when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided up into four different uh, areas, and one of them being the Seleucids, which were in charge of um, 
the area of Judea and Jerusalem. Alexander the Great also treated the Jews quite well. He canceled their taxes during the sabbatical years. He even had the Jews sacrifice on God's altar animals on his behalf and, you know, was really um, kind to them. Well, one of these priests that I was talking about that bribed their way in was a guy named Jason. His real name was Joshua. But what the Greeks did was they would Hellenize you. They wanted you to take upon their culture. And so they would bring in Greek culture, and then slowly everybody would start to enjoy that culture. That is what has happened with Babylon. When the Jews went to Babylon, they became culturized in the Babylonian ways in many, in many cases. There were just a small handful that just refused to say, no, we're going to stand firm on God's culture, a biblical culture. So what's sad about that is when God brings away after 70 years for the Israelites to go home from Babylon, it was prophesied that that would happen, but most of the people who were captured and taken to Babylon, they died in those 70 years. It was just some of the young ones, and so they grew up. All they knew was Babylonian culture. Imagine that, being born when you were taken to Babylon, and now you're 70 years old, and you get an opportunity to go back to this home that everybody's talking about, that you know God's chosen place for you. It would have been very difficult because all you knew was Babylonian culture. That is all you grew up with. And as a result of that, only about 10% of the Jews actually came back home when they had an opportunity to. And in some ways, that's really sad. And I think the biggest reason that that's sad is because I think God was preparing a way for them to A, get out of Babylon, and B, to get them where he would be coming so that they would recognize him when he came. Because when the Messiah came later then, there was so, so few Jews that were truly Jews that were there. No wonder they had a pharisaical system that had so many Babylonian ways in them, so many compromises, because the culture had overtaken them. And so many people missed the Messiah because they didn't listen to the calling and wouldn't come out of Babylon. Well, it's happening again here as well. Now we see that the Babylonians are gone, but the Greeks are in power. And you've got Alexander the Great, and then after that, now you've got Antiochus, and they're all just infiltrating in every way. As I said, they would build gymnasiums that were basically brothels. And, but Antiochus went in then and said, listen, after he got upset, he says, I'm done with this Jewish stuff. You're not allowed to have the Torah anymore. You're not going to read that. You are no longer able to keep the Sabbath. You are no longer going to follow any of the biblical laws. I am going to remove the altar of God. So he desecrated it, tore it down, and in its place built an altar to Zeus. <coughs> Sacrificed a pig on that altar, desecrating it. 
Now, for the Jews, that meant, according to Torah, according to the word of God, that you could not make a sacrifice on it anymore. It had to be cleansed. It was, it was defiled. And so, a lot of people, because of the book of Daniel, knew, hey, this is what Daniel was talking about. And I'm not going to go through the book of Daniel verse by verse, but if you go and just pick up any commentary, you will see that Hanukkah was prophesied in the book of Daniel. And the events that you read in Maccabees is exactly what Daniel talked about. And so when people say, well, why do you do Hanukkah? It's not even in the Bible. They're wrong. It is in the Bible. This Hellenization, it was called, was basically the taking upon the Greek culture. And it became a part of who you are. And to me, that's one of the greatest things that we tried to teach our children is to recognize how we have been Hellenized. And all of these people who have problems with us doing Hanukkah, it is just proof that they've been Hellenized. That's all it is. Those that are upset that you do these things, and they say, it's not in the Bible, and you can say, well, yes, actually it is, here it is, they still have a problem with it. Why? It's because of their traditions. It's because of what they have grown up with, and they don't want to let go of what they have grown up with. They're just like those people who were in Babylon, just like those here with you know, Antiochus, telling them, listen, this is the way we, we're going to live, this is the way we're going to worship God. Now, I'm not telling you that those people who are upset with you because you do Hanukkah or whatever are ungodly, unchristian, they're sinning, they're you know, awful people. That's not what I'm saying. But I am going to challenge those listening who have problems with it to say, why does it bother you? What is unbiblical about it? And if that's the case, if there's nothing that's unbiblical about it, and it still bothers you, you have to look inside and say, have I been Hellenized? To the point to where I'm bothered by my own traditions being challenged. Now, this Jason, he took on, Joshua took on this name Jason because that was the Greek name. And as I said, he gave him a bribe to be the priest, but somebody else came along with a bigger bribe and that was what kind of caused all of the problems. But before we continue with that story, I just want to show you some other evidence that this is in the Bible. It's called Hanukkah primarily today, but it is also called the Feast of Dedication. Because since the temple had been defiled, when they eventually win, the temple had to be rededicated, repurified, in order to start worshiping and sacrificing again. So it's called the Feast of Dedication. And in John 10, Jesus is walking in the temple, and it says, Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Yeshua was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. Before we go and show you what he was teaching fully, Daniel 11, 3 and 4 talks about this, then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. So this mighty king was Alexander the Great. I think any commentary you pick up will probably tell you that. 
Okay, but his empire will be broken up, parceled out. When he died, it was divided up into the four winds, four kingdoms. It says it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. And that's exactly what happened. That these four kingdoms never had the same power that it did when it was united under Alexander the Great. It says the mighty king here was Alexander the Great. Now Daniel goes on to describe, though, another person that was going to come after Alexander the Great. And he says this in verse 21 and 28. That person would be a a despicable person. (coughs) And his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. Well, almost every commentary again is going to tell you that that is this Antiochus IV. He was a despicable person, and he went against the Holy Covenant, sacrificing the pig on the altar, telling him you could not keep God's commands, couldn't even read the Word of God, don't keep the Sabbath, all those kinds of things. Verse 31, it says, His forces will desecrate the sanctuary and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Well, that is exactly what happened when they set up an altar for Zeus, and sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. Now what's amazing is I think everybody saw that this was that. But Jesus comes then in Matthew 24. He tells them, hey, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. There would have been a lot of people going, what? That wasn't it? He said, no, it, there's more coming. But it was such an exact, picture-perfect description of Antiochus IV. And now Jesus is saying, that wasn't it. Then, 40 years later, Titus is going to come, and Titus is going to do much the same thing. Jerusalem will be surrounded. He's going to sacrifice a pig on the altar. He sets his own throne up in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. And we see the abomination that causes desolation set up once again. And I'm telling you, that wasn't it either. Just as Antiochus IV was a foreshadow, so was Titus a shadow of something that's going to happen in the end times. And so as we celebrate Hanukkah, We're remembering all of the stories that go on here, and we're remembering the book of Daniel, remembering what Jesus is going to teach us here in John 10, and we're remembering the the heroes of the faith that we're going to see through the story of Hanukkah as well. In verse 36 of Daniel, it says, This Antiochus, the king shall do according to his own will, He shall exalt and magnify himself above all gods and speak blasphemy against the God of gods. Interestingly, it was Antiochus IV himself who gave him the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Here is a coin that you can see. Um, We find these many times, these coins of Antiochus. Here's Antiochus there in the middle. That's his picture there. But on the back of his coin is Zeus. But what you'll note is they put his head on the, the Zeus picture. So it's, it's Antiochus's face on Zeus's body. And so he was claiming to be God of all gods. God manifest. 
Antiochus would increase in power by sharing the wealth of all of his conquests as well. He would lavish plunder on those who followed him and those that were Hellenized. Anybody who would support him became very wealthy. Kind of fascinating that that's what happens in our country today. As long as you toe the line, you're going to get this extra money, you know, these uh, tax breaks and um, COVID money and what, but you got to toe the line. It's the same kind of thing that was going on there. And unfortunately, most of the people, most of the Jews actually did compromise. They were bought out. Bought out by the gymnasiums, the beauty, the money, the, the privileges. But as I said, there's just a few people who are not going to do that. Verse 32 said, By smooth words he will turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Isn't that interesting? By smooth words he turned to godlessness, those who acted wickedly toward the covenant. In other words, those who compromised, those are the ones that he turned to godlessness because they refused to take a stand on truth and take these little subtle compromises, they were turned to godlessness. But it says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. This is what I have tried to teach my kids the last 20 years or so that we've been doing Hanukkah is I don't want them to be Hellenized by our culture. And this is why we stopped doing Christmas and Easter because I could not find those things in the Bible. Well, I guess I could in some ways. I firmly believe that I can find Easter in the Bible, but it was a pagan god named Ishtar, Ashtoreth. And so I'm not saying that everybody who celebrates Easter today in the church or Christmas in the church today are, are worshiping pagan gods. I don't believe they are. But I do know that it was a taking upon of the world's culture and then adding God to it to kind of make it our own. Why we have those in the churches today. And I said to my family that, listen, we're going to be different. We're going to be separate because it's these small compromises that cause us to turn away from God that one day you look back and you go, well, how did I get to this point? And so I said, I want to follow God's word 100% and get rid of all the culture that I have grown up with and have a biblical culture, period. Now, that has not gone well, gone over well with many people in the churches. Again, I ask, why? What's so bad? Am I denying Christ? Am I teaching works righteousness? Am I, am I teaching that you have to do this to be a Christian? Not at all. But for some reason, this gets just in the craw of people that, you know, Brian doesn't do Christmas. He doesn't have a Christmas tree. Again, I have to ask, is it because you have been Hellenized that it bothers you so much? And very few people really want to take the time to find out what, you know, what it's really about. Why do you do it? 
and even those that do ask that get a quick answer, it's just not good enough. Even though Christ is still the focus, it's just not right. They don't know why it's not right, but they just know it's not right. This is the way we've always done it. Right? Yeah. And that is what Hellenization does to people. And so I just took the stand that as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You can laugh at me, make fun of me, whatever. I don't care. I'm going to teach my family to follow God's word and to stand up for what is biblical regardless of what it means to be accepted into the society or not. Verse 32 of Daniel said, The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. I love that, even backing up here again. But the people who know their God here in this translation will display strength and take action. So there were those people who were going to be persuaded by smooth words and traditions and cultures, money, wealth, whatever the case might be, fitting in. But the people who know their God, the people who know the word, who are willing to take a stand, willing to look different, willing to be separate, those people were going to be strong and carry out great exploits. Well, that's exactly what Mattathias did. 167 BC, the soldiers came to Modin outside of Jerusalem, and they began to force that Greek worship on the, the Jewish families. The priests were the ones that they needed to get in line because the priests were the ones that kind of lead the people. Mattathias was one of those priests, and he had five sons. Well, he was one of these people I believe Daniel was talking about that knew their God and was going to be strong and carry out great exploits. And Mattathias, saying no to Antiochus, drove off the soldiers, and he was yelling, Whoever is for the Lord, follow me. And that was the beginning of a rebellion that started what we know as Hanukkah today. So where is it founded on? What is it founded on? Really, Daniel eleven thirty-two: 32. The people who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. That's what I want my children to do. I want them to know God, be strong, and carry out great exploits. And I want them to say, whoever is for the Lord, follow. Follow him. So, if you want to know what Hanukkah is about, it's summed up right there. Standing up and following God. To know God's voice and to say, yes, I'm going to follow it. Now, if that's such a bad thing to celebrate... Sue me. But that's what it's about. And I think that's a good thing. Their slogan became this, Who among the mighty is like thee, O God? Were they lifting up themselves? Were they saying, Oh, we're so awesome, we're so powerful? No. They knew they were nothing. They knew they had no power. They knew that they had to rely on God and God only. Who among the mighty is like thee, O God? It's me, Kamocha, Baalim Adonai. And if you take those letters, it's M-K-B-A, which is where they got the word Maccabee from. And that is why it became known as Maccabees. So Mattathias' oldest son 
was named Judah Maccabee, or nicknamed later the Hammer because he fought so hard. He would go in and he would attack these little Greek outposts, do it quick, gone out in the forests. Nobody knew where he was again, just quick in and out, hit so hard. What Mattathias did is he gathered a large force and he rebelled against the, the Syrian armies. He overturned the pagan altars and he even killed those who sacrificed on them, the, the compromised Jews. He ordered all the male children to be circumcised because Antiochus said it was illegal to circumcise their children. And then they fled to the desert and lived in caves and some of them went into the forests and lived in the woods. And at first, the Syrians, they weren't going to be silent about this, so they went out and they killed about a thousand of the Maccabeans and burned them alive in their caves and things like that. It was a terrible time. Mattathias became ill just about a year later after this starting the rebellion, but his son, Judah the Hammer, took over in his place. And what's interesting is how long that this battle lasted from the time of the initial rebellion. It was 2,300 days. The reason that's interesting is Daniel 8, 13 through 14 says this, How long will it be until the daily sacrifice is restored again? What do you mean, again? Well, because Antiochus defiled the temple and, and sacrificed a pig on it. So how long until that temple can be dedicated again? Here's the answer that God gave in his word. How long until the desecration of the temple is avenged and God's people triumph? He replied, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Historically, Antiochus' persecution of the Jews began in 171 B.C. and the temple was restored in 165 B.C. Six years later, three and a half months, or 2,300 days exactly. And so you can see why historians say, wow, you know, Antiochus, that fit perfectly. But then Jesus comes in and says, oh, yeah, but that wasn't the end of it. That was just a foreshadowing of it. There's more. It's going to happen again. And so it was on the 25th of the Hebrew month of Kislev, or December, that the Maccabees won back Jerusalem and rededicated the temple that had been desecrated by Antiochus. And shortly after, we, we see Antiochus contracted a painful disease. He died of it in 163 B.C. in the mountains of Persia. And uh, Daniel 8.25 uh, may allude to that as well, but it's also talked about in 1 Maccabees chapter 4, verses 52 and following. When they came to rededicate the temple, as the story goes, it had been defiled, everything's a mess, there had been battles going on, the oil that there was there, bottles, the jars had been broken, and they only found a little bit of oil and it was not enough to go through the purification process that Leviticus talks about to dedicate the temple that would take these seven days. And so as a result, they just thought, well, we'll use what we can. And that oil lasted 
all eight days until oil could be brought from another place to Jerusalem and then the temple was purified. And so that it miraculously lasted longer than it was capable of doing. And so that is where the story goes that we get the, uh, the eight candles of Hanukkah to remember the miracles of Hanukkah. Now, I don't want to burst any bubbles here, but there is no evidence that that actually happened. We don't know the story, to be honest. It is only found in Maccabees, and there is some other Jewish sources that will talk about things, but none of them talk about the oil. However, even in Israel, this is the story to this day. In Jesus' day, that was the story. And so this is a story that has been around a long time. We just don't have any evidence that it actually happened. It may have happened. It is possible. There has been a Jew at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem that he came up through all his studies and research that it seemed that just as in Jesus' day you had the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the scribes, you know, they didn't get along real well. Okay? The Pharisees were the religious leaders. The scribes were really the, like the priests. And so you've always had this warring sect of the, the priests and these other kind of administrative Jews. We know that Paul pits them against each other when he talks about the resurrection because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so, you know, he, he pits the Sadducees against the Pharisees. Well, <clears throat> this professor at the Hebrew University said that the best he could come up with is he thought that it had something to do that the Pharisees basically made up this story because... The priests, Mattathias was a priest, and he was the one that led the rebellion. It was the priests that stood up against sin and stood up for God, and they were going to get the glory. And so they didn't want the priests to be the ones that were being remembered and getting the power and the glory for all of this. So they came up with this story that God had this miracle took place, and it took the, the spotlight off of the priests and it put it on the story of the miracle of Hanukkah. I don't know. All I know is that it's not in the book of Maccabees. We don't know where it came from. The best explanation that anybody has is that Hebrew professor in the last decade or so that came up and came up with that explanation. So I'm not saying it didn't happen. But I can't tell you that it did either. But I can tell you this, regardless of whether it's true or not, even what we do read in the book of Maccabees, what we do see in the testimonies there, is that the priests weren't the ones getting the glory. God was the one getting the glory. Not by my strength, not by my power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. They were giving God the glory to what it was. And that is... I think what is important to remember. Well, <clears throat> either way, we do know that the temple did get rededicated. 
And the theme of Hanukkah has become deliverance, rededication of the temple, oil, and light. Those are the main themes. Now we do know, though, that there is for sure a reason that the eight days of Hanukkah are there, and that is because once that temple was rededicated, they were able to worship God once again. Now, uh, just a month or so earlier, they were not able to practice and worship in Sukkot because the temple had still been defiled and desecrated. Now that it had been taken over, they were able to worship and practice Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is an eight-day festival. So they decided, well, we weren't able to do it then, let's do it now. And so they rededicated the temple and began to worship God and said, let's practice Sukkot here now. And so that is for sure at least one reason why the eight days are there, regardless of whether the oil event happened. So they were just going to basically worship God whenever they could. And I think that's an important lesson for us too. The point isn't whether we have the right time or not. The point is that we should worship God at every available opportunity that we do have. The Maccabees did begin to rule after this. They're the ones that took charge. They're the ones that took over. And they took uh, charge of Judah until Herod came to power in 37 B.C. So from that time of Maccabees to Herod, you've got the Maccabees ruling. And this is important in one way because prophetically we knew that Jesus had to be coming shortly after that. Because you got the Maccabees ruling, they lost power in 37 BC. The scepter departed from Judah. And Jesus could not come. That was a prophecy that the Messiah would not come until the scepter departed from Judah. So kind of important on that as well. Well, <coughs> let me just show you in John 10 what Jesus was teaching at this festival in the New Testament here. In John 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Very fitting for him to be preaching about his sheep knowing his voice and him his sheep that hear his voice follow him. Just kind of like what Daniel said, but the people who do know God, my people, my sheep, the ones that know my voice will be strong and carry out great exploits. He says, I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. You cannot think that because, first of all, Hanukkah is not something that we invented in our time. Like I said, whether the oil is true or not, I don't know, but they were celebrating this when Jesus was walking the earth. And they were celebrating miracles that God had done, and they knew the story of the Maccabees quite well. That was pretty fresh in everyone's mind. And now Yeshua, at this time, is saying, my sheep hear my voice, they know me, they follow me. You can't think that anybody there would not have thought about the Maccabees who refused to be Hellenized. That is the theme of Hanukkah. That is what I want to teach my children. You need to know God's voice so that when people are coming and saying, oh, it's okay to close down your churches, 
it's okay, you don't have to pray, or it's okay, you can do this or that. They go, no, I know my, my master's voice, my shepherd's voice, and I'm going to follow him, not, not you, not this culture. Verse 37 and 38, Jesus said, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So we see that not only was Yeshua promising his people deliverance from sin and death, and not just for a season, but for an eternity here, he's also focusing on miracles and saying, look, Look at what I do. If you don't believe what I say, look at least at all the miracles, the wonders that I have done. When we light these candles, that's part of the things that we say. There is a little prayer or statement of faith in a sense that we say. And it is praising God for his miracles, his wonders, and his salvations. That is what he was preaching on, on this very day of Hanukkah when he walked the earth in John 10. So, is Hanukkah in the Bible? Absolutely it is. More than Christmas, it isn't wrong to honor the birth of Christ, but I would rather honor the birth of Christ on a more biblical way than taking a pagan holiday to do it. So, future applications here of this. kind of... I've already done this, so I'm going to go kind of quick, but uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 5, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. There's going to be a rebellion that is going to take place in the end times. And a man of lawlessness is revealed. There will be a man of lawlessness that will be revealed, just like Antiochus was. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, sounds like Antiochus, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Antiochus Epiphanes. Same kind of thing. And so now 2 Thessalonians is telling us, hey, you know what happened there at Hanukkah? It's going to happen again sometime. And so I teach my children the future application. Hey, here's history. Learn from it. Don't you think history is a good thing to learn from? I think most people would say yes. We need to know the history because if you don't, you're doomed to repeat it. And so by studying the history of the Maccabees, we also see what Thessalonians is speaking of and we know what to watch for. A practical example of it. Okay, Antiochus fit every bit of these type of things. And I think that the Antichrist of the future is going to look a very much like an Antiochus. As we do this, it makes us separate from the world. 2 Corinthians 6 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them among them and be you separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. Here it is in the New Testament telling us that we are the temple of God. We are not to touch unclean things. We are to be separate from this world. By us doing Hanukkah, we have become separate from the world. 
Sadly, in some cases, it separates us from some churches because they think that I'm crazy. Okay? I am not separated from them. They have separated from me. There is a difference. But the point being is, I choose to be separate and different. If the world wants to do Halloween and call it a, you know, another a harvest festival, if they want to do, you know... Easter, Ishtar, and call it the celebration of the resurrection, then they can do that. But I choose to do things differently and more biblically. I'm not saying I'm better than they are, but I am saying it is a better biblical way of doing things. I may not be better, but there are better ways. And I will say that. And so that's my choice. As for me and my family... We choose to follow the biblical ways. So, a lot of the things that God has given us makes us different and separate from the world. Honoring the Sabbath. But how many even Christians today separate themselves to even honor the Sabbath? And again, they get upset about it. Why? What is so bad that I try and honor the Sabbath. Why does that make me so bad? It sounds to me like there's a spiritual battle going on here. Those who know God's voice are going to carry, be strong and carry out great exploits. And I trust that God will do that. You know, Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices <laughs> holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. <coughs> we are the temple of God. And this is a season of rededicating our temple, purifying our temple. Just as the physical temple was purified at this time, we would teach our family that we need to do some self-reflection and we need to rededicate our temple to God. What is in our life that shows that we have been Hellenized. What's in our life that we have allowed to creep in that has allowed us to blend into this world rather than being separate from this world? What, what are we doing that has caused some sort of compromise? What are we watching on TV that is causing us to be compromised? You know, all these different kinds of questions. Matthew 24 uh, I've been mentioning it, but I want you to see it. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. That's exactly what happened at the, the Mattathias, the Maccabees. They fled to the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him in the field to come back to take his clothes. Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in winter. Interesting, right? The time of Hanukkah. Neither on the Sabbath day. A Sabbath day that doesn't matter anymore, apparently. But yet Jesus seems to tell you that pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. I've said it before, but need to remind you again, guys, this has not happened yet. 
we are still dealing with a future application <coughs> to celebrating and remembering Hanukkah and learning from that history. I want my children to be able to watch for the Antichrist, to know God and his word so well that when so somebody comes in and says, you do this, they go, whoa, that's against God. Not, oh, okay, I can do that. I can make that little compromise. It doesn't matter. I'm free in Christ. I want my kids to trust God so that they know that when hard times come, they remember, boy, you know what? God spared these people. He can spare me too. I want my children to know the birth of Jesus based on what Scripture says, not based on what culture says. Uh, but every single one of us here grew up thinking that there were three wise men, you know, that it, all these things that are in our Christmas story that we now know aren't even true. Does that make you a bad person that you... No, it doesn't. What I'm just saying is, I want my kids to be as free from that stuff as possible. I want my kids to be prepared to know the Word of God because those who know the Word of God, who know their God, and we use this time to memorize Scripture. And so, those are the things that I think are the benefits of it. Daniel and Jesus both warned of this. Then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time known nor ever shall be. The Old Testament, this is called the time of Jacob's trouble. Hanukkah is a picture of the time of Jacob's trouble. Hosea predicted this as well. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction. They will seek me earnestly. There is a day coming when there is going to be affliction going on and people are going to be crying out to God. And that's when he is going to answer. So let me get to this idea of Jesus being conceived on Hanukkah. I personally believe that Jesus was conceived at this time of year. I can give you evidence, but I cannot prove it. Um, you're going to see evidence online that Jesus was actually born at this time of year. And there is evidence of that. The question is which evidence is right and the other question is does it matter? I think that I know which evidence is more supported and I think that it doesn't matter. It makes no difference if Jesus was born now or wasn't born now. What makes a difference is, are you celebrating Jesus now? That's what matters. I have said it before, but one of the things that I think is so important for us to do in celebrating the biblical festivals is that we do not run away from something, but we rather run to something. I don't think you should be running away from Christmas. I don't think you should be running away from Easter. I think you should be running to the biblical holidays. You should be running to the Seder, the Passover festival, the one the Bible said was there to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, rather than Ishtar. 
again, it doesn't make you a non-believer. It doesn't make you a pagan because you're a Christian and you truly are worshiping Jesus and celebrating his resurrection at Easter time. But as for me and my house, I want to just do things as biblical as possible to keep me from being distracted and brainwashed. I've told you before, Vody Bacham, I thought, you know, I'd been teaching on creation for 20 years. I've got a biblical worldview that's solid. And then Vody Bacham comes along and says, how many of you think sports builds character? And I'm like, absolutely. And he says, well, if that's true, then the NFL and the NBA ought to be the most character-filled people in the country. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, that just blew my mind. I did not have biblical thinking there. Now, was it wrong, sinful for me to think that sports build character? Not at all. Not in the least. But it was wrong. Am I better off not having that wrong view? Yes. You see, now I know sports doesn't build character. God's word builds character. That's what God's word says, which is why it's Christian athletes that have the character. When the others are just characters. You see, knowing truth does matter. It didn't make me bad that I didn't know that truth. But I'm a better person now knowing sports doesn't build character. Not against sports, just in case you know people sometimes think that I'm attacking their God. So, the point being, it's the same thing here. It doesn't make somebody bad because they do Christmas. But I can promise you, you will be better off knowing the truth and following the biblical holidays because you're going to get to know God's voice so much more because you're going to see why he teaches what he does when he's teaching them. Just like tonight in John 10, you can't think it's an accident. <clears throat> that he was teaching to know his voice and to follow you at a time when they're celebrating people standing up and following the word of God. There's a blessing in that. Well, the idea of Jesus being born or conceived at this time all depends on when Zechariah is ministering in the temple. Now, we had these priestly courses, and I'm not going to go through this in great detail, but I'd encourage you to write this down on the right side here. This is a great website that is going to give you the background from the Bible of exactly how these 24 courses of priests came about, when they were instituted, how they were instituted, everything. I think that by looking at this, we can see from Jewish records the evidence that Jesus was conceived at this time of year. Because everything has to line up. We have historical records saying that when Jerusalem is sacked in 70 AD, when Jerusalem is conquered uh, by the Babylonians, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in, which order of priests are serving in the temple at that time? Now, by following these orders, we can see that it is accurate. So, 
The problem is, is every priest would serve two times a year. And then in addition to those two times a year, by the way, they, they served eight days. They would come on on Sabbath and leave on Sabbath. And they would do that for two different times of the year. That's all outlined in Scripture. Well, the Bible tells us that Zechariah was in the course of Aviah. Now, the course of Aviah is the eighth course. You read about this in Luke 1.5 and in 1 Chronicles 24.10. Now, you can see here Aviah, the eighth course. And then you're going to see it straight across here as well. The eighth course also served not just in Savan, the month of Savan, like September or October, um, but also then in December, Kislev. <coughs> twice a year. Now, every priest served twice, but they also served on every biblical festival. Because at that time, there were so many sacrifices being needed, all hands were on deck. So, even though you served those two weeks, you also had Passover, Sukkot, atonement, those kind of things that you, were, you would be there at that time as well. It's just not as cut and dry as you would think because this is what we typically see. The problem is, is that you've got 24 priests, priestly courses. They both serve twice a year. So you go through your 24 and then you start over. That means you get 48 weeks. There's 52 weeks in the year. Okay, but you also had those holidays too. But it doesn't come out even. So what would happen is at the end of every year, you've got a time period where there's no pre-serving then. So what all the evidence shows us is that Throughout the lifetime of your priesthood, you would actually get a chance to serve throughout the years because this year, maybe I start in January, but next year I start at the end of January. And the year after that, it might be in February that I'm starting my first one. And the year after that, the end of February. And basically, it went through seven cycles so that at the end of a jubilee year, you had finished that cycle and we're back at the normal time again. And so for us to always be saying, well, Abijah served in the eighth course, which is on this month, you also have to ask, yeah, but what year was that? Okay, and that's what makes it more complicated. That's why I have this up here because then you can go look at that and you can see that there was a continuous cycle like that to where it didn't start over January 1st every year. It started every year on a different date. And that was kept with exquisite records by the Jews. And the evidence shows us that they kept that. And that shows us then when it is most probable then that Zechariah was indeed serving at the temple. This here is the evidence that if he was serving at this time here in Savan, then 
that would be the evidence that Jesus was born at Sukkot. I'm not going to walk through all the things, but we know that John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. So Zachariah is in the temple. He says, hey, you're going to have a baby. So you put that time from where he'd be serving. Nine months later, John the Baptist would be born, which basically, uh, I'm gonna get, I'll give you a couple of things here. If John was conceived shortly after this tour of duty for Zechariah, John the Baptist would be conceived shortly after this and then be born on Passover, <coughs> Nisan the 15th, roughly. Remember that Jesus said John the Baptist was a type of Elijah the prophet. Even today, it is customary at Passover to set a plate for Elijah. So it would be very fitting for John the Baptist to be born at Passover. Okay, circumstantial evidence at best. Jesus then would be conceived in Kislev around Hanukkah time, born 40 weeks, 40 weeks later, which would be Sukkot. Now, um, that would be significant because uh, Hanukkah is called the Festival of Lights as well. Um, Jesus, the light of the world being conceived, would fit into that. So you can celebrate the conception of Jesus at this time if you want. You can celebrate the birth of Jesus at this time if you want. If Jesus wanted us to know for sure when he was born... He would have told us. He didn't. I don't think he ever intended us to really celebrate so much his birth as he did his resurrection. But anyway, um, if born on Sukkot, that means his circumcision was on the eighth day, which is interesting because the eighth day is the sacred assembly. It is on this day, according to Leviticus 23, that the annual cycle of the Torah readings start again from Bereshit, from Genesis. It's called Simchat Torah, considered to be a time of fulfillment of Torah. So it would be very fitting for him to be born on Sukkot, and now the fulfillment of Torah has come. Okay, just again, circumstantial evidence is all. Can't disprove it. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The very same word for the tabernacle. Herod most likely would have used a festival that everybody was coming to Jerusalem to take his census. Sukkot would be one which would explain why the inn was completely filled. Hanukkah was not one of those festivals where everybody came. That too, circumstantial evidence. Um, another thing is Hanukkah, for him to be born, Herod would not want that because this is, he detested this time period because he feared the Hasmoneans, those that stood up against the government. So something he would not have been keen on. The angels who appeared to the shepherds said, Do not be afraid, I'll bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Since Sukkot was known as both a festival of joy and also a festival of the nations, the angel was actually giving them a greeting for the festival of Sukkot as well. 
the only festival where the nations are positively encouraged to participate in it. Um, after Yeshua returns and he sets up his kingdom on earth, we see in Zechariah that the festival of Sukkot is going to be celebrated again. <laughs> Zechariah 14, verse 16. Why is that? Is it possible to fulfill a worldwide birthday party for Yeshua? All the other festivals would have been fulfilled. Passover, First Fruits, Pentecost, uh, Yom Kippur, but the remembrance of his birth would, rem would remain as a celebration. Very circumstantial, but nonetheless it's there. And then you have, of course, the Catholic Church in 336 AD made an edict that said December 25th is to be Yeshua's birthday. And in order to replace a pagan Roman holiday of Saturnalia, set up this as the time to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus was 30 years old about when he started his ministry, according to Luke 3, 23. And assuming that as many Bible scholars do, that he ministered for three and a half years, you count backwards from the crucifixion of Nisan, okay, the Passover time, six months to discover his birthday would be then at Sukkot. More circumstantial evidence. So those are the reasons for it. Now, here's the evidence that he was born in December, that he was actually born now. We only have circumstantial evidence, but church history, um, going all the way back to the second century AD, a guy named Hippolytus, Hippolytus, I don't know how to say his name, Hippo guy, he argued that Christ's birthday was December. In the fourth century, John Chrysostom, argued that December 25th was the correct date in 347 A.D. Christostom taught that Zechariah received the message about John's birth on the Day of Atonement, and John the Baptist was born sometime in June or July, and the birth of Jesus was six months later in December. So there was never really a question by the early church that he was born in December. That's true. You will see as well that Saturnalia... We hear a lot about Saturnalia, the worship of this pagan god, December 25th. Well, actually, it was more December 21st to the 23rd, not the 25th. So they say, see, that's not the origins of Christmas, then. It's not Saturnalia. Okay? However, we do know that it was more, it was set up not just for Saturnalia, but December 25th, we see the days are getting longer, Zeus, Mithras, all these pagan gods of the past, because the days were getting longer, the sun gods were worshipped at that time. We do know that the Catholic Church kind of implemented a lot of these things as well. I'll show you that in a minute. We also have an early Jewish source suggesting that the sheep are indeed outside at Bethlehem year-round. And so that there is a certain type of sheep that are wintered in uh, there at Jerusalem. And I think that's true as well. You had the sheep, the sacrificial sheep that were needed year round out there. So could they be shepherding their sheep out in the winter? Possible. There's an early Aramaic source called the Scroll of Fasts that may refer to the ninth of Av as the day of Yeshua's birth. Well, 
<clears throat> what I find interesting about that, the ninth of Av is a day when the temple was destroyed, both times. It's a day of infamacy. It's a tragic day in Jewish history, saying that Jesus was also born on that terrible day. So I could see that being a corruption. So point being, the only real evidence is second century church history that Jesus was born at this time. Well, as you've seen me talk about before, how corrupted early church history can be as well. So, point being, there is some evidence though. And so you can't be upset with people who want to say Jesus was born in December. There is some evidence pointing to that. I don't agree with it, and that's okay because it doesn't matter. I, because of the course of Abijah and seeing how all the dates line up and all these other things, think that that kind of trumps this church evidence. But I want you to just know it doesn't matter. And you have to be careful that you don't get judgmental about people who are going to celebrate Jesus on Christmas. I'm going to do it to be separate. I'm going to do it because I see the other differences. I like to just keep things biblical, and I don't like all the other corruptions that are involved with Christmas and Easter. So I'm choosing to do something different. But I am not choosing to be judgmental on those who worship at another time. I think there are other blessings beyond that. But it isn't because of Jesus being born or not. We do talk about it, that I think he was probably conceived at this time, but that's not the main part of Hanukkah for us. So it's food for thought. I need to close out. I want to just show you that Christmas, though, as I said, is not in the Bible. Even if Jesus was born at that time, there was no festival outside of Hanukkah that would already be in place to celebrate deliverance. And so this is clearly a man-made thing. Everybody would picture this here and say that this is baby Jesus, but it is not. This is a pagan god here. This is baby Tammuz. And we know this from uh, archaeology. Here we see this disc above the head. Every time you see somebody doing this, you think, oh, it must be Peter, it must be Jesus, it's somebody godly. No, this is a statue of Jupiter that was taken out of the Pantheon but is now in the Vatican and is called St. Peter. We think that this disc is holy in the Catholic Church. Why? Because of Hellenism. We have in India, they've got the disc above their head. There's sun god worship that has been throughout history, throughout archaeology, all over the place. But because of our traditions, and we see it a lot at this time, these little discs above, you know, the little halo above baby Jesus, those are pagan origins, no question. It's all over the place. <clears throat> Even in a first century fresco of Mithras, the sun god. I can show you evidence of this all over the place. This one's kind of hard to see, but there's a halo over his head here, that is Mithras. This was in a cave in Israel. Point being is, are there pagan roots to Christmas? Absolutely there are. As there absolutely is with Easter. 
Just because somebody celebrates Christmas doesn't mean that they are taking upon those pagan roots, though. But, as for me and my house, I would rather it be as pure as possible, and I don't want any of those things. I don't want my children growing up thinking that. I want them to be separate and as pure biblically as possible. And that's why I choose not to. I've said that a number of times. I don't need to say it anymore. But I'm hoping that people listening hear that. And I hope that they also hear that it's okay to do Hanukkah. It's okay to do the biblical festivals and that there are blessings in those as well. But you're not abandoning Christ. You're not abandoning or denying his birth or his resurrection. You're not abandoning, you know, the gospel and grace and salvation by grace alone. You're actually highlighting it. And you're, you're trying to step back from the world, get rid of the Hellenization in your life, and you're trying to just be biblical and leave it at that, to start fresh. And as we study in Revelation, we see that it says, Come out of her, my people. A book that speaks to us in end times is begging you to come out of Babylon. And what we see is Babylon is everywhere. Here's Ishtar right there. Happy Easter, you just put a smile on her. Okay, these are things that are all over. When you go to the museums in Israel, you'll see these statues, you see the paganism. And so it's everywhere. In Egypt, and these are all centuries before Jesus. You think that's Mary and baby Jesus. Nope, that's not. That's Samaranus and baby Tammuz. All of these centuries before Christ. So yeah, there is pagan religions. Okay, here's the priest Dagon, the fish head. There's in the Vatican. Same kind of thing. Dagon, the fish god, always had that fish head. These are things in archaeology. Here he is. I don't think it's an accident that the Hellenization of the church also has it here on the Pope's hat. Okay? So, I'm not going to judge the church but I am going to ask them to be honest with themselves and ask, why does it bother you? Is it because you've been Hellenized? That's what this is in part about. Don't be Hellenized. Give glory to God because he is the one that gives you strength. He is the one that delivers, not you, not your strength, not your power, but by the Spirit of God. And I thank God for that because there's a time coming when we're all going to have our Antiochus moment and we're going to need to remember his faithfulness not just on the cross, but in our day-to-day lives as well. So, let's close in prayer.